and for our good. Judges chapter 4, the word of God. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Hashareth Hagoim, because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried to the Lord for help. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have her, their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you ten thousand men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go, but if you don't go with me, I won't go. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But because of the way you are going about this, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. Ten thousand men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. Now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Za'ananim near Kedesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Avinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera gathered together his 900 iron chariots and all the men with him from Harasheth Hagoim to the Kishon River. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harosheth Hagoyim. All the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, however, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there were friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the clan of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she put a covering over him. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer, and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day God subdued Javin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites, And the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, the Canaanite king, until they destroyed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Whenever there's a great 
upset or underdog story in sports, uh, people will afterwards in the uh, sort of ongoing analysis that seems to never end in our 24-7 world, people will be searching for uh, the person who was part of the underdog team that kind of made the difference, uh, the, the one who had some strategy or some game plan or perhaps some performance which led to the win. We're about 18 years after the Patriots' first Super Bowl win, which was one of the biggest upsets in the history of uh, the big game. I should probably say the big game. I don't want to get a lawsuit on my hands. So the big game, right? Uh, And uh, football fans now commonly speak of the coach of the Patriots as the greatest of all time. Their their run over the past several years, decade and a half plus, has truly been something to behold for fans of the sport. But in that, that first win that they had, that first great upset win, he was given uh, so much credit for the game plan that he devised going up against an opponent that was thought to be almost unbeatable, faster than, uh, than the Patriots, more talented. Uh, they would you know, routinely throw up 40, 45, even 50 points a game. And uh, nobody thought that the Patriots stood a shot in this game, but they won. As the final tick ran out, the other team was sort of left stunned, wondering what all had taken place. It was a question of, of credit and, and glory. Since then, of course, uh, just about every NFL team has tried to hire one of this coach's assistants, thinking that they've soaked up enough of the magic. It never quite uh, works out, and uh, routinely he's recounted again and again as uh, he must be the greatest coach we have ever seen. It began as an underdog story, and because it began that way, uh, more and more credit has been heaped upon him in and through the years. Uh, In many ways, we need to keep that kind of dynamic in mind when we read Judges. The narrator, the author, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is putting these great accounts, these great stories in front of us to remind us who it is that gets the credit in salvation. Who is it? that is to receive uh, the glory. Well, it's God. God receives the credit, and God receives the glory. And in salvation, God is glorified in His grace. So let's keep that in mind as we turn our attention uh, to this passage. By the way, just because I was talking about the big game there in the introduction, I'm not therefore giving you permission to skip the evening service. I will be, and we will be looking at God's Word right around kickoff. I can promise you that uh, for those who are interested in the game, I'll finish preaching right around halftime. You can go back and watch. That's, but the rest is between you and the Lord. So we'll be worshiping here tonight at 5.30, just as a reminder. So let's first go through the passage. I'll give an overview of it, a summary of all that we find there, and then we'll go back and unpack certain parts of it. Some people read this story and they say it's sloppily put together. And and that consideration comes from considering this chapter and the next chapter. The next chapter is a poetic recounting of this account. It's sort of a a song. And uh, critical scholars, those who don't believe in the inspiration of the Bible, believe that they find a lot of inconsistencies between the two chapters. And therefore they say this is a sort of a throwing together of two different accounts. But it's really amazing 
when you approach God's word as his inerrant, infallible word, as our authority, and these supposed, these alleged problems really become wonderful glimpses into the power of God to communicate his truth. We'll consider that a little bit more in depth next week. But I say all that because we should always keep in mind that when we're dealing with God's word, when we're dealing with narrative stories, Everything that is contained is there for a specific reason. Not only from the human author who wrote it under God's inspiration, but also God has a reason for each and every aspect of Scripture. For the, We have to keep in mind the divine author as well. And all of the components of this chapter show us, as we mentioned, that God is to receive the credit and glory in salvation, and also that God is a warrior king. He goes out in front of his people. He leads the charge into battle. Human instruments may be weak, cowardly, disobedient, reluctant, and sinful, but God saves his people, and it's all to the praise of his glorious grace. He's in control of all things, and he weaves all things uh, together. He brings every detail of history into perfect harmony in order to save, for he is God, and there is no one else. God's people begin in rebellion once again. We're in the cycle of disobedience and rebellion after the death of Ehud, we read. This time there is a king in Canaan, Javin, who begins to oppress God's people. We also learn about his, the commander of his armies, Sisera. And so we know that he's going to play a key role in this chapter as well. We hear of a prophetess, Deborah, who speaks for God to Barak, assuring him that God will give him victory. She speaks the word of God uh, to Barak, says God is going to give you victory. But that word, the word of Deborah, which is the word of God, is not enough. He desires her presence. He wants Deborah to go with her. You, you really hear, you kind of are meant to hear the cowardice as Barak comes back and says, I I need you to go with me. We see in that action a bit of Canaanite superstition in Barak, thinking that he could sort of coerce the favor of his God by having this prophetess with him. We're reminded there's this ever-growing Canaanization, this affinity with the Canaanite peoples, a superstitious and a religiously uh, wicked people. Because of Barak's cowardice, Uh, Deborah speaks an admonition to him, says that ultimately he will receive no glory in all of this because the Lord will deliver their enemy into the hands of a woman. At that point, you almost assume that it's going to be Deborah, but it ends up being, of course, uh, someone else. The armies are summoned, but you almost get the sense that the armies go with Barak because Deborah is there as well. You don't get the sense that Barak is leading uh, with strength. Once we move to the field of battle, Deborah exits the scene, interestingly enough. And verses 14 to 15 provide the key to understanding the whole chapter. It extols the power of God and victory over his enemies. We read that the Lord routs Sisera. It was him who defeats him. The commander makes an escape. He goes to what he believes is an embassy for him, a safe place uh, into the land the property of Heber the Kenites, into one of his tents, the tents where his wife is, actually. Without any reason given why Jael does this, and even painfully to some, without any moral commentary on the nature of her actions, 
we read this astounding account where uh, Sisera, the commander, is tricked into feeling comfortable enough to fall asleep in the tent. She drives a tent peg through his head, and of course, he dies. He dies. No coming back from that. It's the old tent peg through the temple trick. Barak arrives after all this transpires, and so Deborah's prophecy is fulfilled. Right? She said, the enemy will be turned over into the hands of a woman. That's pr- fulfilled through Jael. And then eventually God's people overcome the oppression of Javin, the king of Canaan. They're delivered once again. We see several things in this story, this account, worth our attention. The main thing uh, that has been studied in this chapter is the presence of these two women. The conspicuous presence and action of these two women. One a prophetess and one about whom we end up knowing almost nothing except uh, what she does to the commander of Javin's armies. The big question that people have wrestled with is whether or not Deborah is a judge. If she falls in the line of deliverers of God's people like Gideon, like Jephthah, like Ehud, and the rest. A governor of, uh, occupying an official position of ruling authority. Many modern readings try to uh, impose that conclusion upon the text. And what they, they often say, this should be no surprise to any of you, that Judges 4 is a chapter that sort of overturns uh, typical social conventions of patriarchy. Right? So many modern readings of scripture uh, of this chapter particularly will say that. That obviously Deborah is a judge, a governor, etc., for those reasons. I believe that if we consider all the things in this chapter, though, uh, Scripture does not make that case. It's important to not impose certain things we want the Bible to say upon uh, the text of Scripture. We need to consider all that it presents to us and ask, what is God trying to say through this passage? So here are the reasons why we should not conclude that Deborah falls in that line of judges and deliverers and governors in Israel. She is not the one named whom the Lord raised up. You usually see that the Lord raised up a deliverer. His name was Ehud. His name was Gideon. The spirit of the Lord is never said to come upon her in this chapter. Barak goes out to battle in verse 14. Remember, Deborah sends him out to battle. She does not go. It never says that she saves. The, the, the verb to save is never said in relation to her name. She tells Barak that the Lord has given Sisera into his hands and not into her own hands. She never faces Javin or Sisera. In later lists in scripture, 1 Samuel and Hebrews, Barak is named as a deliverer. Barak is named as a judge, but Deborah is not. She's absent from the story, the second half of the chapter. She disappears after she sends Barak into battle. For all of those things, I think uh, it's, it's much better to conclude that she does not play that official governing role. So it's more important to ask, what is it that her role teaches us? What is it that God would have for us? And obviously she is very important in this chapter. And what is it that we are supposed to learn? Well, it's all a continuing commentary of the, de- the state of deterioration in Israel. Remember, with each cycle, things deteriorate and crumble a little bit more. What does that mean? Well, Deborah is a prophetess. That's not unheard of for women in Scripture. For instance, Miriam, Moses' sister, Huldah, 
and then Anna in the early chapters of Luke are all named as prophetesses. We read, and uh, our translation doesn't help us out much here, but read that she's in some sense giving word on making decisions. She's sort of helping out in settling things. And, and it reads like it's kind of an ongoing thing. But really, what's going on here is the people are going out to her uh, for answers on this one specific situation. They're, in other words, they're saying, what are we to do about the oppression of this new king of Canaan, Javin? With that, we are meant to ask, where are the Levitical priests in all of this? They're deafeningly silent in this chapter. Remember, at the beginning of the book of Judges, they go and uh, the, peop- the people try to seek the servants of the Lord and say, what does God have for us? And then through the Urim and the Thummim, the, the sacred lots that they would cast, they're given direction. And so what we are reminded of here is that the Levitical priests at this point in the book of Judges are completely gone from, from leading the people spiritually. Deborah, as a prophetess, speaking God's word, is almost standing in for them. And people are going out to her saying, what should we do about this situation, this oppression we are experiencing under Jabin? That's confirmed in where she's doing this. Remember, she's not in any town, she's not in any village or city, but her location is given to us in relation to Bethel, the house of God, right? And so what that communicates to us is that she's outside of any town, and that that shows the continuing deterioration of the spiritual state in Israel. Things have kind of gone haywire. No one is in the proper place. The priests aren't doing their job. And so this woman, this woman of great courage and great obedience, responding to the call of God, uh, fulfills her role. Right? That's, none of this is to say that Deborah is at fault. In fact, she's perhaps one of the only ones in all of Judges who's given to us, and her whole story has really nothing negative to say about her or her character. We don't think of her as a judge, governor, or deliverer. She's a servant of God who fulfills the duty that God gives to her. And she functions to highlight for us another level of the downward spiral of the nation that's continually losing its way. We should notice her strength amidst weak, cowardly, and faithless men, especially Barak. God's word is not enough for Barak because he is weak in faith. He's a a superstitious man. The Lord made him for battle. He's a man created to go out into battle. But he insists that he needs Deborah, a woman not made for military battle, to go out with him. And so in the midst of a nation of men who are not leading in following God, we have a woman about whom nothing negative is said, fulfilling her duty before God, serving well, exiting the stage just in time for God to receive the glory. So she's a model of faith in the midst of crumbling virtue. One commentator says this, that people in our day, especially women, should find inspiration in Deborah is not surprising. She does not displace men in officially established positions of leadership, but her gender does not disqualify her from significant service for God. And so it will be In any age. See, this chapter was not given to us to tear down the patriarchy. It's not some hinge on the battle between men and women. 
Uh, it's not even given to us primarily to talk about the leaders of Israel and the leaders of the pagan nations. This is a chapter which is given to make us stand in awe of our divine warrior, our Savior, who is God. He is the one who has brought center stage. His saving activity is exalted in all of this. Right? So let's consider that together with the remainder of our time. In the ancient world, dangers were everywhere. So having a mighty God, a God who is himself dangerous, is a great thing. The motif of God is a warrior. The motif of God is one who goes out to battle, is one that is, is largely lost in today's world. Uh, one commentator brought up the, the story of Teddy Roosevelt, who is teaching Sunday school. And one of his young boys comes in with a black eye one Sunday morning. He said, what happened to you, young man? And the young boy said, uh, there was a big bully on the way to church who was picking on my sister and uh, sort of physically getting involved with her. And uh, I was wanting to defend her honor and protect her. So I, I got in a fight and, and this, is, uh, this is what happened. And Teddy Roosevelt said, excellent job. Actually gave him a dollar, as legend has it. Uh, the minister of that church or parish was so horrified that he removed Teddy Roosevelt from his teaching duties. And one asks, well, what, does the, what did the minister want the young man to do? To stand idly by and just watch this happen to his sister, right? There are times when the fight is brought to you. And, and in the ancient world, the question was, can the strong... Can the strong use their strength or will the strong use their strength in defense of others? This is, a, this is a fallen world, a world in which there is evil. And in order for communities, in order for societies to be built up, strength needs to be veered toward the good. And if it does not happen, uh, society will not be built in any constructive way. And that's the, the image we get of God in this chapter. God is a God who goes before his people. The hymns of the chapter, verses 14 and 15, where Deborah says to Sisera, Go, does not the Lord go out before you? And then in verse 15, the Lord, the Lord routed Sisera. He, he defeated him and all of his chariots. There's one thing if we could talk uh, in the, about the battle itself that lies beneath the surface. That verb for routed, the Lord routed Sisera, that can often mean to throw into confusion. And it can often mean that in, in the context of a natural disaster, like a furious thunderstorm. So if you take a peek ahead to chapter 5, what you'll see is that there was a thunderstorm. So think about all of the components of the story. This is an army with iron chariots. Remember in chapter 1, that's, that's a big deal. That's, that's an army with a lot of strength. They can be outnumbered and still easily defeat uh, an army that they are going up against if they have iron chariots. But this battle takes place near a river. And so as we piece it all together, God goes out before his people. He sends a furious rainstorm. The, riv the river overflows. What happens if an, if an iron chariot army is in land that is overflowing with water? Their tactical advantage is completely lost. Right? So it throws them into confusion. They're all of a sudden immensely vulnerable, much more vulnerable than they were. The chariot army has now, now becomes an infantry. Zebulun and Naphtali can, can go in and now defeat them with hand-to-hand -hand combat. So God himself, through sending this furious thunderstorm, goes out before his people and he wins the victory. The nations rage. 
The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. This is our God, a warrior king who goes out before his people. We don't get much of this today, perhaps because we have less danger in our lives. But we must remember that just as the warrior king conquers Javin, the warrior king, the divine warrior king, has conquered our hearts. He's conquered us to himself. And he doesn't do it by being nice. That's not how God saves. Jeremiah 23, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. He's mighty, mighty over all things. Not only is he mighty over all things, but he's in control of all things. That's one thing we get from the story, that that recounting of Heber the Kenite moving up into a different part of the country. Why do we get that detail? We get that detail so that we know that Jael, who has something against this man that she kills, and we don't know what it is, but she has something against him clearly, so that we get that so that we know she's in the exact right place to receive him when he flees the field of battle. He works all things together for his salvation and the salvation of his people. And he works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are the called according to his purposes. All things. If you are in Christ, every single thing that happens in this world and in your life is for your ultimate good. And it's all within his control. That's what we learn. That's what we learn. The chapter ends with this stunning account, and we have very little commentary on it. There's some clues that perhaps something was going on between Jael and Sisera, perhaps some combination of uh, betrayal, adultery, fatal attraction, who knows. But there may be something going on, especially in that exchange where they're in the tent. And so uh, we're, we're brought with this, again, a, another amazing story, just like in chapter 3 with Ehud. It's an unexpected victory. It's, a, it's an unexpected salvation, one that doesn't make sense in the eyes of the world. You have this strong commander of an army, who, of armies, who falls at the hands of, of a woman who has tricked him, made him believe that she is safe for him. So he falls into a deep sleep. And so with that, we are reminded Or we are called to remind ourselves that when our God goes out conquering and to conquer, he often does it in ways that don't make sense to the eyes of the watching world. Jesus comes humbly. He comes as a humble king. He comes to seek and to save. He comes to serve. This does not mean Jesus was weak. In fact, we know that Jesus shows immense strength all throughout his life. He shows diligence, perseverance, and might. In contrast to the judges and deliverers of Israel, Jesus is the one who takes the battle inward. He takes the battle to the deepest depths possible. He's offered the kingdoms of the world, and he doesn't take it because that's not what he came for. Had his enemies known that he would conquer through death, through a symbol of shame like the cross, they would not have crucified him. As C.S. Lewis says in his stories, there's a, a deeper magic at work that his enemies could not see. He does not go down from Mount Tabor, but he storms the gates of hell. 
as a divine warrior to bring us back from condemnation. Was our Savior weak? No. In apparent and seeming earthly weakness, he shows his true strength. Jesus shows his true strength. He defeats the prince of the power of the air. He goes out before us. And because of that, he has been set above all other powers, above all other principalities, given a name that is above every name, a reign and a rule that is nothing but strength and might and power and love and grace. And it's all to the praise of God's grace. In the underdog victory, the one who calls the shot gets the glory. The one who does the unexpected is recognized as the hero. In the greatest victory of all, God is glorified in his son, Jesus Christ. So stand in awe of his grace. Worship him for his grace. Give him all your heart. Love him with all of your heart. Only he can satisfy. But the the greatest mystery of all is that the one who alone can satisfy, though he needed us not, left heaven's glory. He went out in battle. Even while we were arrayed in the enemy's army, he goes out conquering and to conquer, to conquer his enemies and to conquer us and subdue us to himself that he might one day bring us home. So stand in awe of his grace and love him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you the praise and the glory and the thanks and the adoration for being our divine warrior king, a strength that we did not have, a strength that we needed. So we give you all the glory for the message of salvation. For you are the God who saves, you alone, and you have done so in your son Jesus Christ. Give us faith in him, to trust in his work, knowing that in him alone are we saved. In Christ's name, amen. Let's uh, stand together.